and welcome to the 51st episode of Rising Tide, the Ocean Podcast. And today we're talking about our 20th anniversary at Blue Frontier. And wow, I can't believe it's been 20 years. This is the Rising Tide co-host, Vicki Nichols-Goldstein, and I'm going to take a leadership role here because I came on the board of directors of the Rising, or excuse me, not the Rising Tide, the Blue Frontiers campaign 20 years ago as a founding board member. And I have seen amazing growth of this organization and have seen all of the wonderful accomplishments. So we're going to have a chance to talk about that today. So David, um, gosh, back around 2002, you wrote a book that really launched this whole initiative. Tell us about the book and what inspired you. Sure. I've always led my life as a, uh, in a schizophrenic manner. As a journalist, I covered wars and politics and the border, but always wanting to go home to go body surfing and diving. So I, I left TV and wrote my first book, The War Against the Greens, in 1994. And since then, I'd wanted to write another book on the ocean, which I finally got to at the beginning of the century. It's called Blue Frontier, Saving America's Living Seas. And right after it came out, I got a call from Ralph Nader, who'd read it and was very interested in the last chapter called The Seaweed Rebellion. It's about all the grassroots folks who have solutions, but how do we scale them up? Um, so I was considering at that time, I just lost my life's partner and dive adventure buddy, Nancy Ladansky. I was thinking of going uh, off to war. That's when President Bush was ginning up the invasion of Iraq. And I felt like I knew that war was a good antidote to depression. I'd done it before. But Ralph was suggesting that we form an organization to link all these grassroots activists, these seaweed rebels, as I call them. And I thought we'll always have wars. We may not always have healthy reefs or, or um, you know, or kelp forests. And uh, so I spoke to a number of, you know, activists and, and fishing groups and ocean businesses that were dependent on healthy seas and, and decided to uh, launch it, which we did in uh, 2002. And one of the first things we did was create a, uh, a book, the Ocean Conservation uh, Guide that became a a website, the Blue Movement Directory, identifying about 2,000 activist groups and, and marine parks and, and laboratories and the like that uh, that over the next 20 years, we tried to link together in the Blue Movement. And and Blue Frontiers, you guys are, you guys, we guys, all of us um, who have been working in this, in this, in this arena with you um, are really known for the Blue Vision Summits. And your first Blue Vision Summit was in 2004, and you've had a total of six of those. And I think I've been to five. Um, those summits are fantastic. So tell us about that very first one and what the reception was and what your goals were um, for these summits. Sure. I mean, in, in our first active year, 2003, we had strategy meetings with activists in California and the Mid-Atlantic. We had a founding dinner at the Carnegie Institution in DC with 125, 150 friends, including members of Congress. And Sam Farr, who was a member of Congress, said, uh, you know, that this is uh, the beginning of a seaweed revolution, which has a better name, Blue Frontier. And he talked about Congress wasn't aware of what was happening in the ocean. And 
you know, we thought we had to bring all these grassroots people together um, and bring them to the policymakers and let them know that there were, they represented millions of people across the nation from sea to shining sea, as it were, that, uh, that valued um, what healthy oceans had to offer. So in 2004, we did organize this first summit. It was 250 folks who on their own dime and on their own time came to DC for four days. There were 250 folks representing 160 grassroots organizations. Our keynote speaker was, uh, was uh, Peter Benchley, who had written Jaws, and I'd heard he was really a, a shark and marine conservationist. So uh, he and Wendy were there, and uh, that's one reason Wendy's on, on our chat today. Um, and he kind of got, got the whole thing rolling along with Sam Farr and others. Of, he talked about, you know, as a youth in Nantucket, how every time he went fishing or went in the water, there were sharks, and that was part of the natural environment. And years later, he saw they were gone. And, and his fascination not only led to his book, but his book led to a lifetime partnership with Wendy, kind of identifying and working on marine conservation and conserving sharks. And uh, anyway, Wendy, you were there. Peter was very complimented to be asked to be uh, a speaker at um, a group of activists like this and, and Sam Farr and other people from Congress participating because after JAWS uh, we really went full-time into ocean conservation and understanding what was going on around the world. We did expeditions with National Geographic and, and other groups um, and I think Peter he did a lot of research for the book Jaws, but as we learned in the next five or six years, um, we saw what was happening to the ocean and how much we were polluting it and overfishing it. And so uh, that turned our life into a full conservation mode. So it was great for him to go and speak. And um, he, did, he did many other speeches um, about the ocean and wrote other books and lots of articles. Uh, so, so we've been associated with Blue Frontier, and I've been associated ever since then on the board. Uh, and I just think that, that grassroots groups are terribly important to get their energy into, into the ocean and help us make some progress here. So Wendy, with the Benchley Awards, tell me what your goals were with that, um, because that went on for 10 years and um, it was pretty special. Yes, it was special. Well, David, you know, Blue Frontier and Peter and I, not Peter, but Peter was deceased then. And um, we had always felt that, uh, that there were so many different kinds of people working on ocean issues, uh, whether they were politicians or grassroots groups or the media, photography, Marco, um, all kinds of people really in there and that we wanted to bring people from many different venues together uh, and honor them. So that was the idea for the Benchley Awards. And, and it was really exciting that the ocean community loved them and felt that they were the Academy Awards of the ocean. I had the honor of being at many of them and they were elegant, beautiful, and really special to have these high level decision makers or filmmakers grassroots activists come in and um, it really, it just shown a beautiful light on what's happening in the world of ocean conservation and protection. And I think 
the 78 winners that were given our Manta Awards over that decade uh, create a real network of uh, leadership from many sectors. And, and, and so in that sense, that's also the Blue Frontier mission is, is to bring these different sectors together so we can strengthen our, uh, our, our movement for healthy seas. And yes, and that movement is continuing to grow. So I'm gonna jump ahead a little bit because we have Margot Pellegrino on the line or part of our podcast today. And she was part of the Ocean Explorers Project. And Margot, you came on board around 2007, is that right? Yes, 2007 with that first trip from Miami to Maine. Yeah, and you're a paddler and you wanted to raise awareness as to what was happening in the ocean. So tell us how do you raise awareness by paddling the entire coastline on the East Coast? Well, fortunately I had uh, a lot of wonderful partners in the East Coast chapters of Surfrider Foundation and National Environmental Trust at the time. And none of this, um, I have to tell you, none of this could really have happened at all without that grassroots um, level of organizing. And, you know, NET was, was pretty instrumental with the press, but none of this, you know, none of the grassroots really would have happened in the way that they did happen if it weren't for Blue Frontier's Ocean and Coastal Conservation Guidebook, which was absolutely instrumental. And, you know, it's, it makes it so easy to organize any kind of ocean campaign with that guidebook. I cannot impress upon people enough the importance of that guidebook. Um, and keeping it up to date is an incredible endeavor and it's a good thing to have because there's nothing like a sustained campaign, especially when it's an adventure campaign, um, up down one up one coast and down the other. Because of course I also used it um, for the Seattle to San Diego paddle and some paddles even in between. And also while I've got you here for a sec, um, you are certainly not alone. Can you introduce your companion who we are hearing more um, in the background? Oh, the, the, the running commentary in the background, that is the flute, our little cockatiel. Well, and, and pirates always had parrots, so a cockatiel seems right for our paddler. I know when I met you in 2007, you introduced me to Roz Savage, who was our other ocean explorer and our Blue Frontier Ocean Explorer project. Roz went on. Like you had already done the East Coast, Rod, Roz had already paddled the Atlantic solo in her rowboat and decided Blue Frontier got to sponsor her as she paddled the other two of the three big ones, as they say, the Pacific and the Indian Ocean. And then we got you. Well, I mean, first we launched Roz uh, with a Hawaiian band and, uh, you know, it was a big event. And then she got stuck offshore and her rowboat capsized three times. She hit her head. She lost her sea anchor. The Coast Guard had to come in and rescue her. So in my uh, book, Rescue Warriors, about the Coast Guard, I talk about how my environmental project was rescued by my book project. <laughs> Roz was determined. She went back out with a salvage vessel, rescued her rowboat, and six months later, we sent her out again, only no ban this time. It was at midnight under the Golden Gate, very quiet. And 110 days later, we met her with a camera crew in Hawaii, the first leg of her Pacific crossing. And, and Roz is, you know, the classic English adventurer. I mean, she's now the first woman and the first British subject to row solo across the three big oceans of the world. 
I was also, I was equally impressed with uh, you, Bargo, because you just, you call yourself a slow paddler, slow and constant. You did both coasts in the interior waters of the United States. And every evening after 40 or 50 miles of excruciating uh, paddling, you'd pull up and network with a local seaweed group and, and make that connection and help them and talk a little about how that worked out. There is quite a big network of ocean lovers and, and just water lovers. And, you know, the beautiful thing is when, when you have um, some press engagement, they really do seem to like to carry the story. And so that also helps connect with groups that want to come on board. And what was beautiful is that, you know, you have, you get to meet the local people and you get to meet the, the very local organizations that are working on the issues that their specific locations are confronting right now all along the coast. So it just became just a growing, I mean, it's, it's a great way to um, amplify the voices of the folks that are on the ground doing the hard work. So they were very, very, they were also wonderful hosts too. So after you paddled from Miami to Maine, did, did you think you were done when I ask you to paddle from Seattle to San Diego? Yes, I, I did. I really didn't expect to keep going. And, and as you know, like NRDC also decided this would be a good thing to do to amplify voices for national ocean policy and et cetera. And so I was really happy actually to have excuses to not paddle Seattle to San Diego initially. Um, and then I ran out of excuses and there was no choice but to do that. And I'm really also glad that I didn't read your book um, about the coastal warriors until after the paddle because <laughs> you know ignorance is bliss I knew the Columbia River mouth was going to be bad but you know we waited for a good day and there were some days where it was not good out but um, you know we, we, I, might, I managed to muddle through. <laughs> you paddled through some of the roughest fetch of ocean in the world. Yeah that, that, that was an unforgettable paddle that, that whole West Coast. Legendary. One of these days, I do hope that you will write a book about that. So in the meantime, we've got the uh, Blue Frontiers having lots of interactions with folks. You've got a new book out there, David. Um, did you want to talk about that? I believe in the meantime, in between some of these activities, you wrote 50 Ways to Save the Ocean. I've had a chance to write several ocean books while we did our Blue Frontier ocean work. Definitely a uh, 50 Ways to Save the Ocean was a Blue Frontier project. It was uh, illustrated by Jim Toomey, who was on our board at the time, the, the uh, cartoonist who has the Sherman's Lagoon syndicated cartoon strip, Sherman being a not very bright but very lovable shark, um, and his wife Megan, the shark, and uh, other characters. And it, with an introduction by Philippe Cousteau, the grandson of Jacques Cousteau, uh, an adventurer in his own right and also a board member. And so 50 Ways to Save the Ocean was kind of a, a simple guide for everyday people that how everything you do every day affects the ocean around you and how uh, simple things you can do to protect the ocean will also help you in terms of your pocketbook, your health, your just sense of well-being. And so it, it had a, a great launch. I, uh, Remember when we got from D.C. to the New York launch, we were all there and there was a fourth grade class of students and this little girl from Brooklyn raises her hand, say, what is it? She says, is that a real island, what you talk about? You go, what? 
you know, what Brooklyn and uh, Queens is a part of. I explained that, yeah, Long Island was a real island. <laughs> New York City is 80% disconnected from the mainland. And as we ran around the country, we uh, made those connections. I think one of our stops was in Colorado, where you had just moved, Vicki. And uh, right. I was fairly amazed to, you were taking me to a dive shop, book talk, we got stuck behind a van with a llama in it. <laughs> and then we get we got to the bookshop and there were, you know, a hundred people waiting uh five thousand feet above sea level. Actually it was the it was a dive shop because you had already gone to the bookshop in Denver. So it was a dive shop here in Boulder. And yeah, you were amazed. Like, what are all of these people doing here excited about oceans? And I think that was the beginning of your thinking, you just moved to Boulder. And I think we made that connection then, which you went on to create the Colorado Ocean Coalition, which is today the Inland Ocean Coalition, because there was just this this sense that it's all connected. And I think one of, one of the 50 ways uh, to save the ocean is talk to your cousin in Kansas about the ocean. Absolutely. And that brings us to our third Blue Vision Summit in 2011. And I brought a large delegation in from uh, Colorado at the time, because that was really who we were really focusing in on. And that was, it was exciting because we were starting to get more engaged with our congressional leaders. We meaning uh, Blue Frontiers and all of the people who participate. So I just remember the excitement of people going, we're going to go visit and meet with our Senator or our House of Representative and Really, just that that movement kept going forward. And then, Wendy, you had the president of Costa Rica acknowledged in the Benchley Award. And she, um, tell us a little about her. Oh, gosh. You know, Laura Chinchilla. Yeah, yeah Laura Chinchilla. She was, she was just marvelous. Um, and um, I've actually stayed in touch with her. Uh, she's still deeply involved, yeah. So, uh, I mean, I think that was one of the wonderful combinations because when we would do a summit and have a Benchley Award in coordination, it, it was really the best of all worlds because everybody coming in for the summit would have a chance to um, meet with some of the awardees at a reception, even if they didn't go to the, the award ceremony. It, it enabled us to have... Um, a whole variety of people there for the grassroots groups, people to see and to communicate with. So that was, that was a lovely time when we could combine those two. I think the high point in one sense was uh, in those years after the summit and after the Benchley Awards, everybody would go up on Capitol Hill. We'd have our healthy ocean hill days. And uh, Sam Farr, who is a ocean hero in Congress at the time, an ocean champion, said that this was really one of the only times that Congress got to sit down with their constituents and actually listen to about the connections of ocean and public health and ocean and climate. And the fact that people, delegations from places like Colorado would come in on their own time and spend their own time to be there and talk to people uh, made it a national issue. It was no longer just a coastal issue. It wasn't just Senator Whitehouse of the ocean state of Rhode Island. But now we've got to the point where like Jonah Goose of Colorado is an ocean champion and and people understand that every state's an ocean state. So those hill days were difficult, but they were also the high points for lots of people. Um, 
you know, people like scientists would come up to me, very smart people going, I didn't know I could meet with my congressperson. And it's like, it takes some planning, but they're, they're working for you and you have to let them know what it is that counts. So, um, you know, I think what we've tried to do with Blue Frontier is everything that needs to be done from celebrations of the sea because you protect what you love to these hill days and uh, and marches. I mean, in 2018, Margo, you, you paddled from New Jersey to D.C. when we launched a global march for the ocean. And uh, it wasn't just 3,000 people in D.C. It was youth-led protests in a in Ireland and Brazil and, and the Marshall Islands. And uh, uh, although that was a rough paddle, you said. Yeah, that was, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm really glad. I was kind of actually happy that people who I was trying to get join me, you know, for the full paddle didn't because uh, some areas had changed. Like the back base, if you're paddling on the inside route, not the Chesapeake Bay, but the inside route on the um, east side of, you know, the Delmarva Peninsula, there's one bay I, in particular, I'm, I'm blanking on the name, Matamkin it might be, um, that is almost completely filled in now at low tide. And I didn't realize that until <laughs> until I was in there and I'm clearly crawling through the muck with my canoe in reverse so I could like kind of throw it forward a little bit without the rudder getting stuck in the mud because he couldn't drag it because the rudder would get stuck in the mud. So I'm crawling with my canoe. And it was just, um, it was it was rather nightmarish and there were storm clouds on the horizon. And I was not thinking happy thoughts at all, but like that was one of the rough spots. And that was actually, it, you know, it was pretty minimal for the most part. It was a, a two week paddle or, or a little less. You made it in time that you were on the Anacostia the night that all the youth were making banners and planning for the uh, big march. And the next day, um, people were there for the rally, um, an interesting array of speakers, uh, youths, and also like Captain Paul Watson of Sea Shepherd and Ralph Nader and, and Carl Safina and Sylvia Earle, her deepness, of course. Wendy, you were there. Um, I think, uh, Vicki, you had a big contingent of people from all over the country. The Inland Ocean Coalition marched at the front and, uh, and it continued. I mean, there, there were more marches the following year in 2019, 2000 people marching in Paris led by women dressed as mermaids. And uh, I was there dressed as a crab on Coney Island, my natal waters, uh, youth march organized by the New York Aquarium. And then, of course, it all went in abeyance with much else in the world in 2020 with the uh, COVID. In fact, our, our local Blue Frontier project here in Richmond, California, to save a headland, we had defeated a mega casino on this headland, this beautiful natural wonder. In 2010, the city had voted 58 to 42 percent against developing this. And uh, but because it's a low income community of color, Richmond, California, Instead of acknowledging the need for a community park, they tried to resell it as a housing development. We're going to take it to another uh, another initiatives for the city to vote on. And in March of 2020, we had 40 petition collectors. We we're going to collect 10,000 signatures door to door and uh, try and win this uh, this coastal park for the community. And everything shut down. And so I think the world changed. So you're talking about Point Maladi in California. 
and I just want to for our listeners. And we did a podcast on that, um, oh gosh, five or six back. So if anyone is interested, they can go learn all about the history of the, the fight, um, how the land is being protected now and how important that, that area is for preservation. But yeah, that's been one of your big projects at Point Malade. And- because the local is national and global. You know, I remember when, when we were young, Wendy and I, the saying was, the saying at the first Earth Day was, think globally, act locally. But today, the crisis of ocean and climate is such that we have to think and act locally, regionally, globally, simultaneously. And it's a challenge for a small organization, but we try and live up to it. Yeah. Well, you've been doing a lot of different things. And um, well, actually, I think in, since we're talking about podcasts, uh, you launched the Rising Tide Ocean podcast in 2019. And now we are in our 50s, which I love. And I joined you about a year ago as your co-host. Um, so that's been really exciting. And then um, just going back, talking about the Inland, we did a collaborative project with um uh, Inland Ocean Coalition and Blue Frontiers to put together the Inland Ocean Summit in Texas, along with EarthX. And that was really an opportunity to kind of go back and utilize that directory that you put together um, and utilize people inland and around the Texas area to bring that message to all about how very, very important it is. So um, you've also, at that particular time, did a communications workshop. So tell us about that initiative and how that fit into the um, Inland Ocean Summit. Well, we did a media training workshop for some of the people that you and we helped bring together. Um, Because of my background, 30 years as a freelance journalist and working with Ellie Curlow, one of our volunteers, who's a professional award-winning public relations person. We bring in local journalists, We bring in uh, videographers and try and train people how to communicate with journalists, how to do their own social media, how to turn their campaigns or scientist data into stories and the importance of storytelling and sort of training people to do good media. It's part of what Blue Frontier calls its Blue Beat project, the idea that the only resource not fully exploited in the oceans is good storytelling. (laughs) And so... And so we had a a Blue Notes, a quarter million words later, we transitioned from Blue Notes to the podcast, the Rising Tide podcast that we now co-host. We do the media trainings. We've done it from scientists at the International Union for the Conservation of Nature to youth activists in various venues, including through Earth Echo. Um, We just think that media is really important. We've, Blue Frontier has produced in its 20 years, over 350 uh, articles and opinion pieces from the New York Times to uh, specialized magazines like Surfer or Alert Diver to uh, you know political outlets like The Hill um, because communications is a part of it. It's like how to get the grassroots communicating the messages. Uh, we have so many solutions at the grassroots level that the challenge is one of our bench award winners once put it is to scale up the solutions faster than the problems. And my last book, The Golden Shore, California's Love Affair with the Sea, was about, I realized where I live, California, we've got 40 million people, the world's fifth largest economy, and we're doing really well by our coast and ocean because there's that sense of entitlement. Every Californian understands the ocean belongs to them. 
and we look for those models, both small and, and global models of how to do better. Our most recent effort of the last three years is this Ocean Climate Action Plan, which started also, as you said, in Vicky in 2019, um, a lot of progressive politicians came out with a Green New Deal for climate, which was great, except there's no blue in this Green New Deal. So Blue Frontier partnered with the Center for the Blue Economy at uh, Middlebury's Institute for International Studies down in Monterey. And we began building the kind of coalitions that we've always tried to put together of uh, frontline communities, national leaders. We we had a first conference in Monterey in, in 2019. And in 2020, we had a final Ocean Climate Action Plan, which talked about uh, different areas where ocean can provide solutions to the climate challenge from greening ports and shipping to uh, sustainable aquaculture to offshore wind and clean energy transitioning off offshore oil. And uh, with a lot of support from figures like John Kerry and uh, and Leon Panetta, and um, who were both past Benchley winners, as well as uh, Robert uh, Bullard, who's like considered the father of the environmental justice movement, Sylvia Earle, of course. And we built a coalition and in the last two years, we were able to influence our, our Ocean Climate Action Plan was a template, but much of it ended up in the Congress's Ocean-Based Climate Solutions Act. Um, we advocated for $10 billion for coastal restoration, um, $4 billion for greening ports and uh, shipping, which ended up in the Build Back Better bill, the, the national effort by the Democrats to address climate and included $11 billion that we'd been advocating for Blue Frontier and its partners, 11 billion for uh, protecting our coast and oceans and building a, a coastal core, a climate core of young people to engage in that restoration and greening our ports and shipping, which is uh, largely started and inspired by one of our Benchley winners, uh, Geraldine Natz, when she was the director of the Port of LA. And unfortunately, in this last year, it kind of got frozen opposition by two corporate Democrats in the Senate. Um, but you can't give up. We know what the solutions are. We need to keep working to create the political will to enact them. And, and that's 20 years on. That's that's what Blue Frontier is still dedicated to. I want to jump in here, too, because part of the Ocean Climate Action Plan, or OCAP, um, was really about getting people involved. And uh, I think all of us on this call today were involved in that OCAP Hill Day, where we had over 300 people from 30 states and territories meet with 150 members of um, House members and their staffs and 33 Senate offices to talk about this Ocean-Based Climate Solutions Act, Coastal Barriers Resource Act, um, and all of the things that you were talking about. And I think having citizens, community members really engage on this topic around this OCAP priority was significant. So just give me your input or your thought about that because you were very involved in organizing this. May I just quickly say that I just thought that was an absolutely important grand effort. Those two years were really well done. I thought it was well organized. Um, and, and I just thought it was very powerful, David. Bravo to you. 
And and to all of us, I mean, Senator Merkley of Oregon said that he, he made a very nice comment. He said that, you know, the only way legislation ever gets done is if it's an outside inside effort, if you have the outside pressure to get the politicians to listen. And, and we were that outside pressure. Deb Holland, when she was a congresswoman before she became the first indigenous secretary of interior, said that uh, that wherever you live, the ocean's got to be part of your life. And that's why she had used uh, Ocean Climate Action Plan integrated in some of the legislation she'd introduced. And so I think we're we're making the ocean real that, you know, that there's some blue in the red, white and blue. And and I think that it's frustrating to see years of effort frozen when, you know, a coal millionaire out of West Virginia doesn't like the idea of taking climate action, uh, which is what happened. But you have to you have to link it. We're we're, we're continuing our job, which is educated, educating elected officials, educating potential candidates on why the ocean is important for the jobs, the livelihoods, the survival, not only of coastal people, but of all all people on our blue planet. And I think we, you know, we also continue to do it with celebrations and with fun events. I mean, our our seaweed happy hours that we used to have at the Reef Bar in DC became blue drinks nationally. Um, I always used to say, you know, if, if you're going to be part of the ocean movement, maybe you want to drink like a fish <laughs> now and then. You know, you do it with joy because you protect what you love. And 20 years into it, I think that we've we've built a network of people like like y'all who um, who just realized that if we school together, uh, we're facing growing crisis. I mean, the cascading disasters are real and our oceans are at risk like never before. Um, but you can't give up. We don't know if we're going to win. All we know is if we don't try, we lose. And and it's too, our, our ocean is just too fun and sacred and important to risk losing. Well, you sure said that well. And uh, I think all of us on this call today totally believe that. Um, we have a few minutes. So I just wanted to go to Margot and Wendy. Um, you've been involved with Blue Frontier for practically the entire 20 years of its existence. Margo, why don't you go first? What are some of your visions and hopes for the organization as we move into the future? I'm sorry, I didn't quite hear that. While Margo works on, on her sound system, these are so frustrating sometimes, these conversations, but, but at least we've got this way of communicating through two years of COVID. So I, I mean, I just, I, I hope that Blue Frontier just continues with what they did with OCAP. Uh, because continuing to bring the blue into the climate conversation is just absolutely vital. And um, not only that, lobbying Congress, but also uh, I would love it if we could do another summit. I just think that they were so exciting, and I know it's a lot of effort, but um, especially now that we're able to get out and about, um, I would hope we could bring everybody together again to Washington and have some speakers and um, and do some lobbying on the hill in person. It it inspires people. And um, so thank you, David, for you know making it happen. And I hope you just just keep making it happen again and again and again. It's been a great twenty years, David, and I'm glad that I've been part of it. Uh, and that Peter was part of it for quite a few years. So thank you. 
what I think I'm hearing you say in the beginning is uh, what are my thoughts for the future of Blue Frontier and what I'd like to see more of. I, I really do think it is so, such a powerful thing to unite the grassroots groups so they can trade what works, what doesn't, um, to, to keep that network strong because um, relationships really are so important. And especially, um, you know, and here's a specific, you know, folks in Alabama where everything is an uphill battle and they're not really helped a whole lot by their, um, you know, their, their, their federal, the guys in Congress or the senators. And, but when you can start empowering the people on the ground to put pressure on those folks, you can be quite intractable things do start to happen. And so that is that that connection with the grassroots from all over, you know, either, you know, either coast, Gulf Coast, and the middle, um, getting those folks who understand that water ocean connection, and who are working on similar projects, even in the heartland. Um, I, I think it's such a powerful movement and to keep going that it, it is unstoppable. I mean, one thing I've said over and over again about the people I've met on the ground, um, you know, holy heck, if we could get campaigns for elected officials to focus on water and the ocean, you know, that, 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 those two things have the biggest fan group. And any politician who latches on clean water, clean, healthy ocean is, is and makes that a central part of their campaign. You, you can't find anyone who will say, hey, I'm, I'm all for dirty water or I'm all for a sick ocean. You know, people get it. And Vicki, let me ask you, other than making Rising Tide one of the most popular podcasts in America, what's your vision for Blue Frontier's future? I think that Blue Frontier has a phenomenal potential to grow. I agree with Wendy by having these summits, bringing people from around the country, working together, reaching out to political leaders, and then also being a champion for the ocean as a solution to climate change is absolutely critical. I think people are just starting to wake up to the issue that, wow, ocean acidification, overfishing, um, the need for marine protected areas, People are starting to get it. So we just need more and more people throughout our country and throughout the world to really pick up the, the, the flag, the banner, and really work towards ocean protection. And I think Blue Frontier has an ability to engage people on a number of levels. So I just want to see it grow, and I'm really delighted to be part of it. And I hope I can stay part of it for yes, the next 20 absolutely. years. <laughs> the ocean is rising, but so are we. Oh, my gosh. You bet. And uh, David, um, what is your vision? You kind of summarize it a bit, but just maybe in a sentence before we wrap up. My vision is to see Blue Frontier grow to where it's got the capacity to um, to turn the tide. We're very, you know, we're like the Coast Guard that I wrote about. We do a lot with a little. I'd like to see us have enough people um, who can work with us, be engaged, be part of the actual organization um, that we uh, take on a role of what we've always had, which is building a movement, a fair and equitable movement that connects all the frontline communities um, with all the policymakers and that everybody gets it from bottom up and top down that, as Sylvia says, no blue, no green without a healthy ocean, we have no healthy economy, we have no healthy way of life. And with it, anything's possible. 
That's beautiful. With that, I want to thank you, Margot and Wendy, for joining us on the Rising Tide Ocean podcast. David, uh, thank you for your 20 years of leadership. Looking forward to many, many more. And everybody have a fantastic oceany day, no matter where you are. Rising Tide is a production of Blue Frontier, co-hosted by David Helbarg and myself, Vicki Nichols-Goldstein, with support from Natasha Benjamin and Ellie Curlow. Rising Tide's editing services and additional technical support are provided by Studio Kate May. The theme song is written and performed by Ethan Kenbarg. You can find Rising Tide, the Ocean Podcast, at www.bluefront.org or download it from Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Off in the salty ocean, off where the waves roll free, the sparkling water rises, then crashes to the sea. Out amongst the breakers, you'll have no need to fear. It's true, it's the Blue Frontier. Tear, tear, tear. Off in the salty ocean, off to the Blue Frontier. Sparky, come here, buddy. Sparky, there you are. Good boy, Sparky.